I know for many of us, today has been a hard day. First day of a retreat. It's really hard work. It's amazing how challenging doing nothing is. We really haven't done a lot today. Sitting and walking, 45 minutes of work. Eating, being in silence. Really, we haven't really done a lot. Yet at the same time, it's, it might be one of the hardest days you can remember in recent history. Uh, the practice can be challenging. For many of us, what got us here, whether it's to IMS or whether it's to begin this journey on the, on the path of awareness, has been uh, you know, a lot of inspirational words. Uh, there are, of course, countless books about Dharma, about meditation, so many different kinds of meditation. And many of us, uh, you know, grateful, I'm, I personally am grateful for the inspiration that, that these teachings um, have given me. And yet at the same time, everybody in this room has recognized at one point or another, although that may be not right in the forefront of your mind right now, but at some point or another recognize that really reading books, hearing about other people's experiences, being inspired to, to look at ourselves um, through other people's words, through other people's experiences, that we realize that it's not enough. You know, that somehow we need to do it ourselves. And that's, of course, what we're doing. We're really doing it ourselves. We've made that choice. We've made that decision this weekend to really come here and to take a look for ourselves. And tonight I'd like to talk about this process of investigation that everybody here is engaging in. What appealed to me so much, uh, what appealed to me about this practice, what inspired me the most was uh, the spirit of inquiry that really permeates this entire practice from the beginning to the middle, all the way, along the way. It's really that spirit of inquiry, that spirit of investigation. There's a a well-known discourse of the Buddha. It's called the Kalama Discourse. It was a time when Buddha was traveling about teaching in India, northeast India. And he stopped in a village and offered his teaching. And the villagers approached him, somewhat interested, but also somewhat ambivalent. And they said to him, you know, like, we, you know, here in this village, there's so many people who travel through, so many teachers offering different teachings. It was, it was a time of real uh, spiritual rejuvenation. There were a lot of teachings. And they, they asked him, well, well, you know, with all these different teachings, why should we believe you? I'm mean, just another teacher. And he said, good. You know, I, don't, I don't really want you to believe me. You know, don't rely on my words. You know, don't, don't rely on the authority of my myself as a teacher, but rather begin to look for yourself. Don't rely on the authority of books, but to look for yourself. Try the practice and then tell me whether it works. Tell me whether it's a worthy journey. In the one glitch is, you have to try it. You have to try it. You can't just do it from your armchair looking at it, thinking about it. You have to actually do it. And in this particular practice, I can tell you right now, from the beginning, you're probably getting a sense of this, 
um, it takes a lot of patience to try this practice. And not everything happens in one day. Not everything happens right away. It takes patience. When we talk about investigating ourselves, you know, I think in this culture, you know, this culture is very reflective, certainly at least in alternative kind of new age cultures. Uh, there's a lot of introspection, a lot of looking at ourselves, a lot of investigating. And when I talk about investigation in this practice, I'm not talking about, uh, I'll say what investigation isn't, first of all. Investigation isn't analyzing yourself, problem solving, figuring things out, developing strategies. That's not the kind of investigation that we're talking about here. What's the problem with relying on analyzing and figuring out and problem solving? You know, really, to, to, what's, what's, the, what's the limitation of that? Well, for one, it hasn't worked for us. You know, all the thinking we've done. And, you know, everybody in this room is quite clever, we're really very good at using our minds. You know, we're very, very advanced, highly developed, I think, in terms of our thinking processes. And yet, at the same time, the more we think, quite often, the more we think, the more discontent there is. And so that should begin to tell us something. It doesn't mean that we have to stop thinking in order to be happy. Once again, sometimes people think meditation is about getting rid of your thoughts. It's not. It's not about getting rid of your thoughts. But it's about investigating oneself on a deeper level than just thinking about things. The problem with just thinking about things or analyzing or figuring out or problem solving is what's at the basis of the thinking so often. It's not the thinking itself. We need to do all those processes. But it's really beginning to go deeper and to begin to look at what's fueling the thinking mind. And quite often, maybe you've begun to even taste it today, if you're new to this practice, but certainly if you've been doing this practice for a while, you're very familiar with these different energies, the different forces that fuel our thinking. And the Buddha described these three forces as kalesas. And really what they are is conditioned reactions, which form, which generate, which energize our thinking. And those three energies are greed, hatred or aversion, and delusion. Those are the kind of three forces that that are underneath a lot of our thinking. When we begin to get a bit more quiet, we can begin to observe our thinking rather than being lost in them. But often what we can begin to see is that craving for the pleasant. That's what greed is, of course, is the craving for the pleasant. And so many of our thoughts revolve around trying to get what feels good, what's pleasant, or trying to hold on to what's pleasant. In some kind of hope, some kind of desperation that it's going to bring some kind of happiness, some kind of lasting happiness. And so much of our thinking, so much of our fantasizing is based on that, feel, that impulse, that conditioned reaction towards clinging on or craving for pleasant things. The other reaction, the other kalesa, is aversion, which is fueling an enormous amount of our reactions, which is telling us to avoid pain, to contract around it, to push it away. So many of our thoughts are designed to avoid pain. When you begin to get silent, you begin to see your thoughts more clearly. When you begin to become a little bit more mindful of what's going on, 
we begin to see over and over and over again, we base decisions, we generate a lot of thinking around how to avoid pain. And what's the problem with that? What's the problem with avoiding pain? What's the problem with developing strategies to avoid pain? Well, the problem is it creates a lot of discontent when we experience pain. You know, unpleasantness, pain, is, is a natural part of life. It's part of nature, really, to experience the unpleasant. It's part of what it means to be a human being. And if we structure our life, if we make our choices based on trying to avoid the unpleasant, you know, we create a lot of suffering, creates a lot of fear, a lot of tension. There can be a lot of judgment about pain. Once again, creates a lot of fear, a lot of tension, a lot of condemning when we experience pain. Doesn't, I don't want to sound like I'm making a virtue out of the unpleasant, because it's not. But it's basically pleasantness and unpleasantness really come and go in life. It's really out of our control quite often. The more we try to avoid it, really, the more we're going to meet it, the more we're going to have to confront it. And so when we, dev- when we develop our thoughts, so much of our thoughts are, are generated, are, are based on this greed, hatred, and delusion. Delusion is really that confusion in the mind. It really doesn't see what brings happiness. And in fact, the root cause of greed, hatred, and delusion is, in, in the Buddhist uh, understanding anyways, is ignorance. And ignorance is nothing bad. Ignorance is really simply not seeing the way things are. And it's really this not seeing the way things are that generates a lot of our thinking, that keeps us reaching for things that don't bring us happiness. And so that's why so much of our self-reflection and self-analysis doesn't really bring us lasting peace, because it's built on a, a misperception, a misunderstanding of what's going to bring us happiness. And so we have to look somewhere else. We have to begin to investigate more deeply. We can't just rely on our thinking minds. It's not enough. It's not enough. One teacher described investigation uh, in, the, in, the wor- in the language of the Buddha in Pali as satipanya. Satipanya. Satipanya is, sati is mindfulness in Pali, panya is wisdom. And it's really the joining of mindfulness with wisdom that's really at the heart of investigation. It's this ability to pay attention to your experience be really open and to be very connected to what's happening in the present moment without any judgment or evaluation at all. That's what sati is. Sati is this power. Whether you do this practice or not, it's a power that you have inside yourself. And what we're doing over and over again when we come back to the breath, over and over again when we come back to whatever our experience is in the present moment, we're nurturing this innate power that everybody in this room has. I'll bet you, no matter how the day went, you've had more moments of mindfulness, more moments of knowing what your experience was. You might not have liked it, but there have been more moments of actually knowing ah, restlessness, boredom, sleepiness, breathing in, breathing out, touching, moving. More moments of mindfulness because what we've been doing here is really trying to nurture that quality over and over and over again. Really, all our words up here are really just to, to function as a reminder, as a way, of, as a pointer, really, to just 
paying attention. Come back to the present moment. Come back to the present moment. Once again, our conditioned thinking constantly takes us out of the present moment. Someplace else always looks better. Always looks better. And that's the power of thinking. So habitual. It's so conditioned. And so we need an investigation to begin to come upon something new. We need to be able to begin to look at our experience in really a fresh way. And the way to do that is not through thinking about our experience, but looking at our experience. Simply paying attention. Simply paying attention. But learning how to pay attention in a sustained way. See, many of us, for instance, if you're feeling restless, you know you're restless. Okay? You know you're not happy. You know that you're not happy with the way things are going, and so we're feeling restless. So we do have that moment of mindfulness. I'm restless. I'm restless. I'm restless. I don't like it. I don't like it. And we know that. But the problem with it is, is that the mindfulness of the experience is very fragmentary. It just happens very sporadically. And then there's often a reaction to the experience. We know we're restless, but then we don't like it. We wish it would change. And so we forget to be mindful. We forget to be mindful of that reaction to the restlessness. When we can begin to sustain the attention on the experience of restlessness, well, that's when wisdom comes in. Because then we begin to see, so we begin to see the true nature of restlessness. And what's the true re- nature of restlessness? It's the same It shares the same nature as the weather today. It comes and goes. It arises and passes away. It changes. Five minutes, you know, you're looking out and it's sunny. Five minutes later, it's raining. Get your coat on. Get ready to go for your walk. That's what happened to me today. I was ready to go out. It was sunny. Five minutes later, I go walking out the door and it's raining. Turn around. Restlessness shares that same process. It's like the wind. It arises and passes away. It arises under certain conditions. Here you are sitting again for the fifth time today. It's a lot more than you've ever used to sitting. And there's the conditions for restlessness. Restlessness arises. We know we're experiencing restlessness, but we don't keep the mindfulness on the restlessness itself. With the change of instructions, we're, we're now asking you to really try to sustain your mindfulness on an experience if it's strong. You know, if restlessness is there for five or ten minutes, keep your attention there if it's strong. Begin to look at it without judging it, though. That's the key. That's the mindfulness piece. Looking at your experience without judging it. When the mind gets more concentrated and focused, which is one of the reasons why we spend so much time with the breath, then then we begin to learn how to sustain the attention. To keep it focused on an experience long enough so that we begin to see the changing nature of the experience which is what wisdom is. Wisdom tells us that whatever experience we have, it's going to change. That's what we mean by insight meditation. Because when we begin to see the changing nature of experience, we become less reactive to it. You know, you might have even tasted this already. Even if you're a first-day first student, you might have already begun to taste the fact that what happens when, in your first sitting when you start feeling sleepy, when you start feeling re- restless, Immediately the mind gets very reactive. Oh, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. You know, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. How come I'm sleepy? I should have gotten more sleep. Uh, you know, this, I had to get up too early. Why didn't they schedule the, the sitting to start after breakfast? Whatever the reaction is, there's a lot of reactivity, a lot of judgment. But what happens in the third sitting? You get sleepy. Oh, I know this state. Yeah, this is sleepiness. And you also know it's going to probably end when you get up. 
You start walking around, you go for a walk outside and you start feeling better. And so in the next sitting, maybe you're sleepy again. But, you know, you begin to develop what we call equanimity. This ability not to react so much to the experience in the present moment. This ability to be equanimous is really the, 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 the taste of freedom that comes out of this, this practice of Vipassana, which is the taste, which is the freedom of being able to be with your experience completely without reacting against it. Without reacting against it. You know, sometimes when we talk about observing experience, you'll hear that us say that, be observant, be attentive. Sometimes people get a misunderstanding of, of what that means. It is a very different, different notion. Uh, sometimes people think observing means you're being self-conscious or you're looking at your experience from a distance. You're detaching from it. You're getting distance. You're getting perspective. That's not what we mean by observation. Because investigation, looking at your experience, requires really two very interrelated, very similar qualities. They all become one at some point in practice, which is this ability to pay attention, but also the ability to be with your experience fully. To be with your experience fully. So when you're washing the dishes, you're really there washing the dishes. You know, you're feeling the water, you feel your body, you're being very attentive. You know whether you're doing a good job or a bad job. You're really present for it. You're with that experience. You're not somewhere else. You know, what creates distance is when we're preoccupied with thinking. So over and over again, when you come back to the present moment, that's what you're doing is you're beginning to live life fully. You're with the experience. You're getting much, more, you're getting much closer to the experience. It's what we call getting more intimate with moment-to-moment experience. It's getting closer to the experience. And at the same time, you're observing, you're being attentive, you're awake. And sometimes at the beginning, the observation feels like it's over here. You know, kind of disconnect it. But after a while, these begin to emerge. Being with the experience and being attentive begins to be the same thing. That comes with practice. So that there's a merging. There's a, there's a joining with the experience. But at the same time, you're not getting lost in the experience because you're paying attention. You're awake. And that's very, very freeing when you can begin to live your life fully from one moment to the next. That's the liberation. Really, that's the joy. That's why practice isn't always grim. Sometimes, you know, there's so much pleasantness in, in life that we miss because we're so preoccupied. So practice isn't just about working with pain, but it's being present for the pleasant things, too. Now, how many times have we sat down to a really delicious meal? You know, maybe we've spent an hour cooking it, or maybe we've spent a lot of money in a fancy restaurant, and we start eating, and we get the first taste or two in, and before you know it, we're thinking about other things. And before you know it, we're ordering dessert. You know, we miss the meal. And that's because we're so preoccupied with thinking. So when we can learn to be more present with the experience and pay attention to it, we're really uh, recapturing life. You know, we're beginning to life, live life more fully. You know, once again, a misconception about practice sometimes is this notion that we're withdrawing from life. And certainly, everybody here has done some renunciation. You know, we're un, many of us are in unfamiliar territory. You know, we're, we're subjecting ourselves to all sorts of people that we might not normally uh, want to spend time with, say. You know, we'd rather be, maybe be with our families or friends on the weekend. And here we are, we renounced that and we really came here. Um, and, and I admire that, I respect that. Um, lost my train of thought.
in so much of the energy, you can see so much of the energy is about coming back into the present moment, trying to come back into life more fully. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. You get to, mas- you get to be a master of kind of talking about something that you'd, you, you weren't talking about just so that you could remember what you forgot, which is just what I did. Uh, there's a few, few stock phrases you can throw out there uh, <laughs> while you remember really where you were going. Um, yeah. Withdrawing from life. Sometimes people think meditation is withdrawing from life because, you know, you close your eyes, you kind of, you know, you're, you're, like I said, you stepped out of your life. But this is really a temporary context. All of us are going to spend the vast majority of our time in daily life and, and, and we're going to talk more about that tomorrow. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, what we're really doing is we're really learning to live life more fully so that when we do go out into the world, you know, we are more present. You know, one of the greatest gifts you can give somebody is to be present. Maybe the best gift you can give somebody is to be present, not to be preoccupied, not to be somewhere else, not to be lost in thoughts, not always to be reacting for or against, but really be available, accessible, open. And that's really what the practice is about. It's being open, available, accessible. And that's what investigation is. It's really looking at things, looking at your life, looking at your moment-to-moment experience in a fresh way. And we've already talked about beginner's mind. And that's what it is. You know, for some beginners, they think they're at a disadvantage. But you're not. You're not. Not in this practice. This practice challenges when you start, you know, adding up the years in the resume, the sitting uh, retreat resume. It's easy to forget beginner's mind. We think we know what we're doing and we uh, get comfortable and we know we can sit for an hour without moving and we develop all sorts of habits. Um, and, you know, we, we lose that fresh mind, that beginner's mind. Investigation is about rediscovering that. It's about rediscovering that. One thing we lose when we lose this beginner's mind, and all of us do, unfortunately, lose the beginner's mind along the way. Our brains get filled with all sorts of conditioning. We, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, carry around a particular self-image, you know, an image about who we are, you know, about what's possible, you know, image that we're attractive or unattractive, smart or not so smart or average ideas about all sorts of things about ourselves. And it's really, a lot of this stuff is really crazy. You know, it's stuff that we just picked up along the way. And it's this image of ourselves that really limits us. It it gets in the way of looking at our experience in a fresh way. Our conditioning, too, gets in the way a lot. You know, when we try to take a look at our experience, you know, we sit down. One of the reasons why it's so difficult to just sit and do nothing and be reasonably content is because of our conditioning. We have all sorts of expectations. We have all sorts of judgments about ourselves. You know, we come from a very competitive culture. And that works against us in some ways in this, in this practice because it takes so much patience. And it's really about not achieving anything. This practice is about not achieving anything. It's not about becoming anything. I, I really mean this. It's not about achieving anything. It's not about becoming anything. It's really about learning to open up and let the process just unfold. It's not about becoming somebody else. But in this culture, that's, where, that's what we're conditioned to do. That's what we're conditioned to do. 
I was on staff at IMS in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. IMS had only been around for a few years. And I worked in the office. And back then, of course, there wasn't uh, nearly as much interest in meditation or the Dharma. And so the retreats were much smaller, uh, much fewer retreats. And and staff had a, a, we had a pretty good time, actually. Uh, We kicked back a lot in the summer. Uh, We used to go swimming collectively. You know, there was a lake nearby. We would go swimming. And, you know, we had a lot more leisure time. They worked a lot harder than we did then. And I'm kind of glad I was on staff back then uh, because I'm inherently lazy. Um, So one day, a friend of mine on staff invited me to uh, play tennis. And I I played sports when I was a kid growing up. And, uh, but tennis wasn't one of the sports I played. Uh, I played other sports like football and things like that, even though I was small. I played those kind of more conventional uh, games. And so we, we had a couple of tennis rackets, and we and right on the other side of Barry, there was this tennis court, a uh, really nice tennis court outside in the country. I had just, I think I had just joined staff, or I'd been on for a little while, so I was, you know, really appreciating being in the country, having lived in the city. And so we started playing tennis together, and we really had a good time. I mean, we really enjoyed it. Uh, it was so much fun. And it was just so much joy in just getting out. It really helped balance all the sitting and all the sitting at the desk and sitting on the cushion. And so doing something physical was very uh, invigorating for me. And then, you know, then, you know, so we started getting a little bit hooked on it and we started going out, kind of trying to sneak out every day. And, uh, you know, by the third or fourth session of playing tennis, uh, you know, I was starting to pick up the game, you know, my sort of uh, sports history, start, my sports conditioning started coming up and we started playing a little bit harder and harder. And then we started getting a little bit more competitive with each other. Um, but we were still enjoying the game a lot, and we'd come back to staff, and we'd be talking about what a great time we had. And, and pretty soon it, was, it, was, it, it got quite contagious, and, and people started taking up tennis. And, uh, and a lot of things go on behind those doors that you don't know about. It's not, not everybody's doing this, I guarantee that. Um, so we started playing tennis, and, and three or four or five, and pretty soon there was probably like six or eight of us beginning to get out there. Like half the staff probably was getting, there was only like 12 staff, I think, back then. Uh, so about at least half the staff were getting out and playing tennis. And before you know it, uh, you know, we start, it's, we, there was this competition that started evolving in this, in this very fun game. And, we, and, you know, before you knew it, we were starting to construct tournaments out of this very innocent game of tennis, we started, you know, uh, you know, keeping track of who was beating who and who was going to play next. And w- I remember there was even somebody came up with the idea of a little trophy uh, for the <laughs> for the person who won, who became the master of everybody else. Uh, and you know, what was a very joyous, wonderful activity soon devolved into, you know kind of serious business. And really, um, when the tournament was over, nobody played tennis again. I think. <laughs> that was it. That was it. All the joy was out of the game because we had just turned it into this, this huge thing. And you can see, you know, going from the beginner's mind where we were just out to have fun and we turned it into some really serious business. And the point of the story is, of course, that that's our conditioning was showing up and we certainly weren't investigating or looking at our experience so we would have seen the unhappiness we were creating. Um, but also we t- tend to take that mindset into practice. 
we, t- we take that mindset of, of looking at our neighbor and wondering what they're doing or thinking they're doing better than we're doing or maybe we're doing better than they're doing. And, you know, we bring this kind of competitive achieving mind to something that's very, very simple. Not necessarily easy. In fact, not necessarily not easy, but something that's very, very simple. That's not about achieving. It's not about becoming. But it's simply about learning to look at your experience in a very direct, fresh way so that you can begin to look and open up to other possibilities of being. Because that's what practice is about. That's what investigation is about. That's why you're here, really, is to take a look for yourself and to see, you know, are there other possibilities, you know? And, and also, everybody here is looking within themselves. You know, that's, that's a radical difference. You know, what you're taking on you know, uh, with, a, with this practice of insight meditation is really quite different because most of our conditioning tells us to look outside of ourselves. You know, if only we could get this, if only we could avoid that, if only we had this, if only we were somewhere else. You know, it's always outside of ourselves that we look. And what we're doing here is we're beginning to take a little bit more responsibility for our happiness. You know, we see that constantly trying to grab on or hold on or get more doesn't really bring lasting happiness, even if we get it. And a lot of times we don't. So maybe we need to begin to look inside ourselves and try to mine, you know, try to, to get, you know, to try to, to dig and find something that's within us that's really going to bring us lasting happiness. Something that's going to bring us uh, something that's much more reliable than something that's impermanent, that's intangible. And that's what we're doing. is We're nurturing this quality of mindfulness, this beginner's mind, so that we can discover the innate qualities that are there already. These innate qualities are there whether you see them or not. It's just that they get obscured. And they get obsc- obscured by our habitual thinking and all our reactivity. That, that doesn't really allow us to begin to just sit with an experience. It doesn't allow us to just experience it fully without either pushing it away or holding on to it. And that's why it takes so much patience. That's why we emphasize per- perseverance. Because over and over again, we need to remind ourselves that whatever is happening is okay. Let's see if we can be with it. But let's see if we can be with it in a different way. Rather than reacting against the sleepiness, rather than reacting against the restlessness, rather than buying into all those conditioned reactions. Let's see if we can just be with the experience and pay attention to it. Learn from it. Learn from it. Let it teach us. And one of the things that will teach us is that it's impermanent, that it changes, that it arises and passes away, just like the weather. And so we don't have to react against it so much. We don't have to tighten up against it. You know, we don't want our happiness depending on things being exactly a particular way. We want more freedom than that. You know, we want something more lasting, something that allows us to experience deep peace in the face of difficult challenges. And believe me, it's possible. It's possible to experience unshakable peace in the face of really tremendous difficulties. I've seen it over and over again. That's the kind of freedom that we want. But we have to earn it. It takes really sitting down and being with that untrained mind of ours, that mind that's cranking out one thought after the next, the mind that doesn't want to be here, wants to be somewhere else, anywhere else. At this point, it's probably anywhere (laughs) but here. You know, work even might be looking good. (laughs) You know, you might even be looking forward to Monday morning. (laughs) 
You probably didn't expect that. <laughs> Thought you were coming on a vacation. So how to begin investigating? Of course, that's what we're doing. You know, taking a look at your experience in a fresh way, in a new way, in a way that's sustained so that you can learn from it. Well, it definitely takes training and it definitely takes patience. The practice that we teach here at the center, it's called shamatha vipassana, which is the development of calm and concentration, really learning how to stabilize the attention. That's the shamatha aspect. And that's what we've been doing most of the day. But there's also another component, which is vipassana, which is that taking that stable mind, taking that ability to pay attention to your experience and, and really using it to begin to pay attention to the changing nature of experiences. In other words, take that mindfulness of the breathing that you've been developing and begin to expand upon it a little bit more and, and, and begin to shed the light of mindfulness on other experiences. The shamatha phase of the practice is very important. Okay? It's, it's extremely important because if we just, you know, in this particular, I mean, the, Buddha, the genius of the Buddha was that the teachings are very, very practical. He understood, you know, really quite clearly his own mind, but he also understood the nature of all our minds, which is our minds are all over the place. You know, we think we can have the best of intentions, the best of intentions. You know, we can think this is the most important thing we're doing in our life, but we're still working with the mind that's untrained. We're still working with the mind that's going to be all over the place. You know, the mind doesn't do what we want it to do. We want it to pay attention to the breath, but over and over and over again, it moves away. Over and over and over again. And believe it or not, that's an insight. That's, what, that's an insight. That's, that's not inherently, a, you're not doing anything wrong, if you've noticed that. It's an insight. You're beginning to see the fact that these thoughts come and go, come and go, come and go, and they're not really in our control. At the beginning, that can be discouraging, but it also can be very freeing because then we begin to realize that we don't have to identify with our thoughts so much. You know, we don't have to take every thought, every mood, every state of mind that comes up you know, as me, as mine. We don't have to take that, that feeling, that sleepiness as me or mine. It isn't. It arises and changes. It passes away. Where's the me now? It's gone. Same with restlessness, same with boredom. You know, we tend to identify with these experiences. We take them as me or mine. And that creates a lot of suffering for us. You know, it's like identifying with the weather. We don't identify with the weather because we see that it's out of our control. You know, we see that it's part of nature. It comes and goes. You know, we might want a sunny day. And sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't. And mostly if we're in New England, we've come to accept that fact. Weather changes and we're not always in control. Sometimes it's a lot colder than we. But our moods and states of mind are exactly, exactly, exactly the same. Only it's our conditioning that has told us that all these thoughts and feelings and moods are who we are. This is what we're about. This is who we are. And if we accept that fact, if we accept that fact, we, we're not really investigating. We're not really beginning to look. We're not beginning to see the nature of our experiences. We take them as me or my, and all of a sudden they become very solid, very fixed. And then we build self-image around that. I'm an angry person because you're feeling angry. I'd say you're feeling angry because sometimes you're not an angry person. 
I'm an impatient person. Well, sometimes you're impatient, but other times you're not. It comes and goes. It comes and goes. Extremely important insight to see that coming and going. But in order to see it, we have to have a mind that can look in a steady way. And that's what the shamatha practice does. You know, if we focus on the breath for long enough, the mind gradually begins to settle down, gets more concentrated, more focused. And that, once again, allows us to investigate. When we open the field of attention up, now we can begin to watch and experience for more than maybe just a fragment of time. Maybe we can stay with it for a few seconds. Maybe we can observe sleepiness in the body or observe restlessness in the body. That's how we investigate states of mind quite often in this practice, is we begin to observe them in the body. Many of the different emotions and moods that you go through are expressing themselves in the body. Very helpful way of investigating, of keeping your attention on the experience, is by being in the body. Not getting so caught up in the content of the mood or the quality of the mood, but really beginning to look at it in the body. Very helpful way of investigating. Really beginning to open up and to look at the experience in a very free, open way. Shamatha practice, really, we're building a foundation. You know, a foundation of steadiness, concentration. Then when we begin to open, thing, open up, what, can we, what, what are the kinds of experiences that we begin to investigate in this practice? Well, one of the things I've already mentioned is investigating pain. And what does that mean? It, it means that we're, we're doing in this practice is when we do encounter pain, remember, it's balanced effort in this practice, being gentle and persevering. There's no virtue in just sitting and really being in excruciating pain and hating every moment of your sitting. You know, you're really not doing yourself a favor by that. It's much better to shift, do it mindfully, and then find another comfortable position. But at the same time, if you moved every time you felt a little bit of discomfort, every time you get, you'd be amazed at how uncomfortable your body's all of a sudden going to become. You know, all of a sudden, oh yeah, that's it, that's that, 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 that. And before you know it, you're bouncing back and forth. You're in a constant state of flux and movement on the cushion. Uh, because, you know, we're, we're reacting against the pain. We're not investigating the pain. Investigating the pain, if it's mild, you know, if it's kind of mild, you know, it's just a tension in the body or there's, there's some discomfort there. Investigating would allow us to begin to look at it a little bit closer. Get a little closer to it without judging it. Remember, mindfulness is that capacity to look at something unpleasant or pleasant, you know, in a very non-judgmental way. Just looking at the experience. Ah, there's unpleasantness. Looking at the characteristic, if it was a knee pain or tension in the shoulders, really beginning to observe it. Begin, if you begin to look closely at it, you'll begin to see that it's changing. What we once thought was a very solid experience really is starting to, you know, vibrate, move, as different heat, cold, changes, changes all the time. And also when we begin to look at the experience, we also begin to see quite clearly that we're reacting against it. We don't like it. We have aversion to it. And with, when mindfulness gets more sustained, we begin to take that reaction as part of the practice. Very important thing to do is to begin to understand our relationship to pain. Not through intellectually, through thinking about it, but seeing it arise in relationship to pain. And almost always when we experience pain, there's often almost an automatic reaction of aversion to it. If we can begin to investigate and not judge the aversion, but look at it you know, in a sustained way, the aversion, we don't reinforce the aversion. We don't reinforce, with the power of, of non-judgmental attention begins to soften the aversion. We don't feed it. We feed it with our thinking mind, the mind that just escalates, makes it a lot worse. 
And quite often our reaction against something unpleasant is, is, is stronger and more difficult and really ultimately more painful than the original sensation itself. And that's true for physical sensations, but it's also true for emotional pain. You know, there's a tendency for the mind to contract when we experience an unpleasant st- a state of mind. Very important to begin to look at that contraction, to bring attention to it if you, if you notice it. If it's not there, fine. But if you do notice like fear or anger or impatience with a state of mind that's unpleasant, it's very important to acknowledge it. That's one of the first steps in investigation is to begin to acknowledge what your experience is. It's a tremendous freedom and relief to begin to acknowledge where you're at. You know, to begin to really say, ah, restlessness is here. Instead of getting into this struggle, you know, just acknowledge, ah, I'm feeling restless. Restlessness is here. Sleepiness is here. Just be sleepy. Simple. Just be sleepy. You're not going to die on the cushion through sleepiness. It's just not going to feel great. And it will also pass. So it's that non-judgmental attention that's really liberating us because we stop judging an experience that we're not always in control of. And that's very, very, very freeing. It's tremendously freeing. And it builds confidence over time. At the beginning of practice, a lot of self-doubt comes up because the calaises, the difficulties that we face, really overwhelm our capacity to be mindful. You know, so much of our conditioning, and the conditioning really comes pouring out sometimes in practice. You're sitting, you're doing nothing, and all you're doing is just reacting, reacting, reacting against everything. You know, the mind is just cranking out thought after thought after thought, and it's easy to get discouraged. But if you're patient and persevere, slowly but surely the mindfulness begins to get stronger because you're dedicating yourself to it. Mindfulness as a quality is much, much stronger than any of the calaises than any of the reactions that we have in our minds, any of the aversion or the hatred or the greed. Mindfulness is much stronger, but it's really innate. It's really down there, and we need to nurture it. There's no experience that you can have where it's not possible to be mindful of when mindfulness gets stronger. And think about that. You could be going through anything, and it's possible to pay attention, to look at it, to open up to it. Any experience when the mindfulness has been developed, when this capacity to be with whatever's happening, that surrender, that capacity to be with whatever the weather, whatever the weather brings, whatever the mind shows you, learning to be patient, forgiving, opening, softening. And what comes out of that capacity to to be with experience without being so reactive? What comes out of it is this inner balance, this inner poise, this confidence, a really deep confidence. Confidence that's not dependent on things being a certain way. It's the confidence that that allows you to know that you can, you know, you really can, can open up to anything that comes along your way. You don't have to go looking for unpleasant things to prove anything. You don't have to cling to pleasant things to make you happy. You can live life fully, all the ups and downs in life. But, you know, you you learn not to be so overwhelmed by them. You learn to be balanced, open, connected. Life begins, begins to give us something back. You know, so much of our life is we're expending energy after energy after energy. And that's, it's very draining life sometimes because we're asked to give all the time. But life really begins to give back to us 
even the difficult things begin to give things back to us. You know, we begin to deepen. We begin to see experience more as an opportunity, as a place to deepen, to deepen our equanimity, to deepen the peace, you know, to deepen the connection with others. Because ultimately, that's what practice does. It gets us in touch with the universal. That's what wisdom is in practice, is getting in touch with the universal, what connects us all. We all look very different. I know, I've been looking at it all day. All different faces, different bodies. We all look very different. We all have different histories. But there are things that are common, that connect us all. We all share the same nature. And we all have the capacity to experience very deep and profound peace. If we can begin to live in harmony with nature. And living in harmony with nature is really overcoming this sense of separation. Me, you, I. Really beginning to open up to the fact that all the experiences that we're having are constantly in a flux of change. We don't have to protect so much. We don't have to separate so much. We don't have to make so many distinctions. And we begin to see that common universal you know, wisdom, that we're all in it together. When other people suffer, you know, we think about Kosovo. You, know, you see the suffering. We're suffering too. We're not there. The suffering is different. You know? But we're, we all suffer when other people suffer. And when we liberate ourselves, when we develop this capacity to be with other people in a more compassionate, wise way, we're giving back to the world. The world's a better place to be much better place to be. And of course, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to do the work. Because we want the world to be a better place. You know, it's very difficult. And it's not going to, you know, it's not going to, things, prob- you know, things aren't going to get better unless we really work on ourselves first. And of course, that's what we're doing. So keep going in the retreat. You know, we have an evening and part of a morning tomorrow. Even if it's been difficult, keep going. Try to be persevering. Try to be continuous. Try to stay in there. It's really worth it. The time is precious. It's a short retreat. And simply keep coming back to whatever's happening in the present moment. And just keep looking at it. Let's sit for a minute or so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.